Well, good morning. Romans chapter 14 is where I would invite all of you to turn in your Bibles, page 804 and 805 in our church Bibles. In just a minute, I'm actually going to read one verse from, verse, or from chapter 14, even though we're going to work through the entire chapter, believe it or not. But I thought it would be helpful to read a couple of verses also from 15, as 15 is right after 14, and just the whole argument that Paul's making that we'll work through this morning will be greatly helped by the reading of those few verses in verse 15. Okay, when we're done, if you have a question or two about what was said or sung, I'm going to be happy to try to answer those questions for you when our time is through. Uh, Chapter 14, Romans, accept him, and actually in the Greek, those whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable matters. And then chapter 15, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who you insult have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. So with one heart and mouth, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's bow together and let's seek the help that we need. Father, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should we gain from his reward? We cannot give an answer. But this, God, we know with all our heart, his wounds have paid our ransom. And so, Father, our request this morning is very simple. Make this book live in us, show us ourselves, and show us our Savior, and make this book live in us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Christian unity can be one of the hardest things to achieve. It should not be, but it can be. To that same end, the great number of divisions of or in Christianity is by far the great shame upon us. If you've ever talked to a skeptic who has doubted the claims of Christ, more often than not, one of the arguments they come with, and I would tell you rightly so, is when they say, you Christians say these things, but you cannot even agree on many of these things yourself. And certainly, and regrettably, and in varying degrees, the skeptic is right. However, if I was presenting to them, or anyone for that matter, a perfect church or a perfect Christian, then that would be a perfect myth. Because, for example, what Paul has been writing about in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans is not how to be a perfect church and not how to be a perfect Christian. He's been writing about Jesus Christ, the perfect Savior. And of course the church of Jesus Christ has far to go when it comes to sanctity and unity. It's, it's so troubling to me that I have so far to go, even though God has been, in my mind, amazingly gracious to me. However, the whole point of the good news, and this is why we keep our place at the foot of the cross, the whole point of the good news is that at the cross, Jesus takes all our ugly clothes and gives us instead his robe of righteousness. That at the cross, clean before God, we stand in us, not one blemish 
does he see? And at the cross, we see the parable of the prodigal son unfold. As the son comes home in repentance, the good father doesn't throw him back out. The the good father doesn't throw out a great number of, I told you so's, or okay, you're back, but you're walking on the thin line, mister. No, the good father does none of that. The good father throws him a party. And if you know the story, it's a pretty good party. When I was a kid, this was the party. You got five bucks, a card, and a cake, and a picture, and that was it. There was eight of us. Birthdays were happening all the time. That was all you got. This guy got fatted calf and gifts and, we'll just say, lots of wonderful things. In other words, in the parable, that's our gospel. That is what has been won for us by the precious blood of Jesus. So the gospel is not a mere makeover. It's a complete transformation. And here's the key. Jesus is the gospel. Dick Lucas writing on apologetics. In the Bible, God does not give us a watertight argument so much as a watertight person against whom in the end there can be no argument. In other words, listen to the apostolic injunction. Colossians 1.28, we preach Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ it's all you heard from me and him crucified, Paul says. Galatians 6, 14. If there's going to be any boasting at all, may it only be about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, loved ones, in the case of Christian unity, which is our concern here this morning, what makes unity possible is only, get this, only gospel truth, uh, the homogeneous, homogenized, hey, we drive the same kind of car, hey, we have the same kind of budget, hey, we have the same kind of taste, hey, we're raising our kids the same way, hey, we have the same kind of house, hey, we have the same kind of politics, is not what empowers Christian unity. Those things don't hold anyway. But the biblical precepts that what keeps Christians united is the gospel does. The gospel does because the gospel is not a local message. It is a global message. Therefore, in Christian unity and the charity that it promotes, we have to come to grips with the fact that that Christians, just like everyone else, we are citizens of our time and place and circumstance, and that in many cases, it bends us in a different way other than our fellow believers from everywhere else. In other words, the way we view the world is shaped by the place and people we grew up with, with the lines of learning and living with and down, whatever media outlets that we hold to and listen to and so on. Consequently, our origins and our history, current and past, it affects everything. And, and that reality is so powerful and so subtle that it's almost impossible to pick up if we just, if we're left to ourselves to work out. In fact, if we left our own to work out what of everything in our culture is good and true and what is acceptable simply because we're used to it on our own, we are unable to do that. Think of it this way. One of the scariest things for me when I study history, so we'll say, for example, Roman history during the first century, is how so many were, were doing so many horrible things and the culture accepted these things as normal and okay, the treatment of children, the treatment of women. Read a history book. It was accepted as normal. And here's why I say that, because I think, what if 200 years from now, someone is studying our time and our place, and there's things here that we can't see, and they say the exact same thing about us that we said about the Romans 200 years from now. 
So what do we need? What we need is a voice outside of culture. We need a voice outside of our convictions. We need a voice from heaven. You see, I'd like to think that if I was put in a time machine and I lived as a grown man in 1968 Mobile, Alabama during the civil rights movement, I'd like to think that I would be on the right side of things. I'd like to think that if I lived as a grown man in, let's say, Philadelphia, 1840, and that influx of Irish immigrants because of the potato famine in Ireland, and I was an Italian, I'd like to think that I would welcome them and not oppose them. I'd like to think that, but I don't know that. So, we are products of our time and place. And the disturbing thought is that there could be things inside of us, inside of our hearts, inside of our churches, which will be as objectionable to people 200 years from now, just as we might be at some of the things we look back on history and are horrified as well and say, how could they have done that? And that is part of what makes Romans 14, especially verse 1, so necessary. So we, we go straight to our first point. If you're taking notes, you can see it on the back of the worship folder, get it right. Get it right, because that's what Paul is saying. If someone says, no, we're not products of our time and place, then you only have two options. Either our time and our place and our churches, this one including, included, has, every, has everything right, and we're at the place of c- cultural purity, and so Christ is more of a symbol now than a savior, or there's things wrong which we can't see, which we are blind to, So what do we need? We need a voice outside of our culture. We need a voice outside of our context, outside of our taste, our bents, our personal convictions. We need a voice. We need a gospel. We need the message of the cross. And that is what Paul begins with there in Romans 14, 1, in a really remarkable way. You see it there, verse 1. Look at your Bible, but it's open. Except those whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. So the original context Paul writes into is Jewish Christians are coming together with Gentile Christians and each one's origins and backgrounds greatly differ. Therefore, the common things of life, eating, drinking, talking, thinking, are now being done together in certain times in certain places together and the difficulty of that cannot be overlooked because the problem is Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians serving and worshiping and believing and then being united in their faith at first... It wasn't easy as you would think. It wasn't that easy. So much so that there are three whole chapters in the New Testament book of Acts. There are three whole chapters in 1 Corinthians. And by the way, we're going to study 1 Corinthians, Lord willing, either next Sunday or the Sunday after that. We're going to work through that book. That'll be our next book. So three whole chapters in 1 Corinthians and two whole chapters in Romans working to solve a problem, Jew-Gentile problem, that really didn't have to be a problem, but it was a problem. John Stott, commentary from Romans 14. This is what he says. It must have been hard in the early church. One small church, perhaps meeting in a home, contained Jews who wouldn't touch any food that wasn't kosher, Gentiles who relished all food, slaves who might have been spiritually more mature than their masters who might also be Christians. Even the worship day was a struggle. Jews, Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. Christians, Sunday, because Christ rose from the dead on that day. So they called Sunday the Lord's day. And what about Roman holidays? And what about Jewish holidays? So what Paul does then is he lays down a principle that he wants the church to understand. He wants the church to get it right. So you see there, verse 1, except, that's the first word. The, The Greek word translated means take them in. 
welcome them. There's no trouble here. You are welcome here. And this is warmth and kindness and, and charity. This is not pity. This is not pity for the weaker brother. This is full acceptance of them as equals. Except those whose faith is weak. Well, what's the issue of the weakness? Well, if you look at your Bible, verse 3, it's about diets, veggies and meat. And then verse 5, it's about days, holy days one or holy days all. So diets and dates. And just to help some of you, to the good Jew, their diet, what, what they did and did not eat was something that set them apart and set them out and was kind of a distinguishing characteristic of being Jewish. But what Jesus Christ did in Mark 7 and then what Peter learned in Acts 10 and 11 is that all that stuff is laid to rest. It's just food. It's just food. Look at your Bible, verse 20b. All food is clean. It's, it's okay to eat. And the meat, which was the issue here, was more than likely butchered at pagan temples by pagan hands. And some Christians of tender conscience had trouble with all that. So we'll just move it to our day. It could have just, have been, just as been drink or no drink. Dancing, no dancing. Smoking, no smoking. Halloween or no Halloween. Movies, no movies. Pre or post-tribulation. Homeschool, public school. Big car, small car. Big house, small house. Big church, small church. Music and many other things. And you'll notice that in verse 3 when Paul writes to the weaker brother or sister for that matter. This is a weakness in liberty of conscience. This is not a weakness of self-control. I mean, it would take a tremendous amount of self-control for many of us to only eat vegetables. Okay, back to verse 1. Welcome those whose faith is weak without passing judgment. In other words, without arguing over or making a godlike final judgment on a disputable matter. Matters that in one sense don't really matter, but they matter to you. Uh, the Greek word I've been trying to practice saying all week is dialogismos. And I said it right. I can't believe that. Okay. And, and it's dialogue is the word. Disputable matters, self-based, self-reasoning dialogue, lines of thought which are earthbound, generated out of self, things that promote our own potential prejudice. That's what the word means, disputable matters. <clears throat> things that are not essential, here's the key to the message of the cross. Because in this, Paul is certainly not saying that we should all agree to disagree on everything, including doctrine. He's not saying that. He spent 11 chapters writing with clarity and authority on the message of the cross, the voice from heaven on the one way to salvation. Therefore, the gospel essentials. Uh, and think about this. When you have trouble with one another, we don't usually argue over atonement or the virgin birth or Christ, Christ's resurrection or justification or the right use of the moral law or grace that saves or things that said and believe which lead to eternal life. Those things aren't disputable matters. And it's rare that anyone would argue about those things. Any Christian would. Well, why is that the case? Because they come from the voice of heaven, from outside of culture. They're not bound to culture, any culture in any way. In the gospel, if you're taking notes and you don't want to write a lot, a lot this is what I would say. In the gospel is the voice of God. So Paul's not saying forget your differences on everything. He is saying don't pass judgment on things that are not a matter of salvation. Don't pass judgment. Make a, make a decision on others in secondary issues. Don't pass judgment on things that are clearly not morally wrong. So the Ten Commandments are not a disputable matter. They're divine. They're the voice of God because part of the gospel is that the gospel uses them to expose 
our sin. So what Paul is saying is, get this right. Because the fact that people use religion to exploit, exploit others, holy cow, that is self-evident. The fact that at this point in our history, some Christian radio and literature is just totally based on secondary issues, that's self-evident. The fact that people with big egos and small minds love to blow into a church, start trouble with a heavy focus on secondary issues, tweak to their own bent so that they'll be everyone's hero preaching themselves and not Christ, that is self-evident. And unfortunately, some of us probably have experienced that. And the fact that the holiest outward appearing people in first century Palestine were the very people who sent Jesus to the cross. You see, we've got to think these things through. So loved ones, please hear me. The potential trouble with personal convictions, disputable matters, when we put them forward as essentials, is that we may approach them as absolute divine truth for everyone, and they are not. And they become dangerous then because we might grow to think that they, that they keep me right with God because I do them, or I depend on them in my personal performance of them to keep me feeling right with God, or maybe even more right with God than the other poor sap who's not doing what I'm doing when it comes to secondary issues, Right? I mean, I said this purposely in the beginning of our prayer. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, no, no lines of living that are secondary issues. I'm not going to say anything about that. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. How are you doing today, Billy? I'm doing great. How come? Well, I sinned and I felt bad. So, I read my Bible, helped my mother, and gave a bit more money to church, and I feel so much better now. Billy, that's very nice. It's very nice, Billy. But did you run to the cross first, Billy? Did you talk to Christ and confess? Because, Billy, none of those things you said offer you forgiveness. They're good, Billy. They're good. But they're not the gospel. One of the things I do every Sunday morning is I get up early and read through my notes as you would expect I need to. And I thought about this and I wrote it down. So a long time ago when I was a kid, there was a group of missionaries who came to our church. And they came to our church talking about what they're doing for Jesus. But they didn't lead with the gospel. They led like this. This is what they said. You know, anywhere we go, this is like 19, late 70s, early 80s. Like it's incredible that I can remember it, but that's my problem. So they came to the church. And they're like, you know, when we go anyplace, the men only wear long sleeve shirts and we only wear pants. Nobody wears shorts and the ladies only wear dresses. I mean, even as a kid, I was like, so what? Is that, is that the issue here? You got this much time and you're going to tell us about that? What were they doing? They were leading with secondary issues. And I'm not saying that to be cruel, but I'm telling you that so that we can all be careful. We can all be careful. So point number one, let's get it right. In order to get it right, we need to go to our second point, stop it now. And that's what Paul does. So what Paul does to them and says to them, stop it now. If we're passing judgment on one another over secondary issues, disputable matters, which reveal initial prejudice in us, stop it now. Why stop it? Verse four, look at your Bible. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master, he stands or fall. And he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, what I want you to focus on here is do you see Paul's apostolic confidence here in verse 4b? To his own master, he stands and falls, and he will stand. 
Okay, so why, Paul? Why is this person able to stand? Why is the person who might have a drink or two or go to a movie or two or have a house or two, why are they going to be able to stand? Well, it's the same reason that every Christian will be able to stand. Every Christian who serves Christ, whether it's in the slums of Calcutta or in the high streets of L.A., whether they eat the 27-cent soup that you can get at Walmart for lunch or have a nice steak from 17th Street Grill, whether they serve Jesus Christ in the home or they serve Jesus Christ in the workplace. Question, why is every Christian able to stand? Answer, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Well, why is the Lord able to make them stand? Answer, you ready? Who has felt the nails upon his hand, bearing all the guilt of sinful man? There's only one person that fits that description. It's Jesus Christ. Paul goes on, verse 3, was diets, verse 5, and following days. Okay, which is it? One day or all days, holy. What's the answer? Verse 5b, each one should be fully convinced in their own minds. Which means, enjoy your liberty, strengthen your conscience, and think this through. Again, enjoy your liberty, strengthen your conscience, and think this through. In other words, whether it's diets or dates, and, and, and dates and days, by the way, Paul's not chucking the fourth commandment. Don't, don't think that way. This is Roman and Jewish holidays, holy days. What are they supposed to do with all that? But anyway, Paul's just saying, verse 5b This is what he's saying. Don't just drift into patterns of behavior you haven't thought through, Christian. Don't just drift into patterns of behavior that you haven't thought through. If you have, Paul would say, stop it now. In fact, Paul is so serious. Look at verse 23. He says, it's a sin if we don't think this through and are not convinced that it's okay in the secondary issue, not a moral issue, the secondary issue, that it's okay in our mind to do them. So if we're unsure... We better hold back is what Paul is saying. So, in other words, make sure our lifestyle, our ways of life, our choices of life, where we are headed and what we're doing in life, our customs and bents and so on, make sure you've thought them through. Don't just follow the Christian crowd. Don't just follow popular Christianity. Don't just go with the flow aimlessly. Think, think, think. And since Jesus is Lord and no one else... Since Jesus is Lord, make your choices then in these secondary issues with with Jesus at the very center of them. That's what Paul's saying. Make your choices for Jesus. Well, why Jesus? Again, look at your Bible, verses 6 through 8 there. Why Jesus? Well, whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us live for ourselves alone. And none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. In the Greek, the word belong isn't even there. It just reads, we are the Lord's. We are the Lord's. So since we are the Lord's and since no one else has the right to judge us in our secondary issues... Decide things with Jesus Christ at the very center of everything. That's what Paul says. So that's why I said, stop it now. If you're judging others on disputable matters, stop it now. If you're living a way of life, drifting into patterns of of behavior aimlessly, 
You know, this is trivial, but if the only reason why you're doing what you're doing in your Christian existence is because you saw it somewhere or heard it somewhere and you thought, oh man, that looks great. I think I'll just throw that on me. Don't do that. Paul says no drifting. If we're living a way of life that isn't reflecting the kingship of Christ over the whole thing, young or old, rich or poor, working or retired, online, offline, Paul says, stop it now. So here's a question for you. Do you really want to live the way you're living now in matters secondary? Do you really want to live the way you're living now in matters secondary? I don't know the answer for you, but you have to know. I have to know that answer. Is the life you planned out, are you convinced of it? If, if, you, if you're not, not only is it sin, Paul would say, stop it now. And I think this is one of the reasons why Paul would say, stop it now. Again, look at your Bible, it's verse 10. Okay. You said to make decisions with no one else judging you, but Jesus Christ at the center. That's what you said, Joe. Yes, and here's why. Verse 10. For we all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account. Logon is the Greek word. It means a speech. Each of us will give a presentation of ourselves to God. That day is there. You see, if you or I try to bring down judgment on others, it, it, it means nothing in this realm. But on that day, and this is why it's so crucial, on that day, we will stand before God. This is not a heaven or hell judgment. The cross of Jesus Christ took care of that. But this is a what have you done with the life I've given you judgment, and we'll have to give our presentation. And again, think, think, think. God puts people in the high street and the low street. God has people with low pay and high pay. Big life, small life. He's working all that out. But, but he's given everyone a trust in different measures and varying degrees. And everyone that belongs to him must be found faithful with it. And that's why everybody's days, no matter who you are, what you're doing, in everybody's life, you're raising a whole lot of kids, working hard in the workplace or at the tail end of your journey... Everything, every day, really, 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 really matters. It always has. This is conjecture, but you'll give me a little bit of liberty. The day, God will just say to me, hey, Joe, I gave you four of those, and I gave you three of those. And you know what, Joe? You blew it. You blew it. Or, Joe, I gave you four of those, and I gave you three of those, and I let you do this. And you know what? You did a pretty good job. You did a pretty good job. There's 10 cities for you, Joe, to oversee. Point number one, let's get this right. Everybody's welcome, especially the weak, despite the fact that we might and me may not be in total agreement with secondary issues, disputable matters. Stop it now. Verses 4, 10, and 12. We're judging, judging others in these things. We have to stop it. Christian fellowship does not imply the right to run other people's lives for them. Me or anyone like me behind this box has no right to tell you what and what not to buy, what you should or should not drive, how you should decide on everything. I don't have that right. And if you're not thinking things through in your life and you're not deciding your life underneath the lordship of Christ and no one else, Paul would say you need to stop it. You need to think things through with an open Bible. Isaiah 66, 2. Here are the ones that I esteem. Here are the ones that I lift up. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Finally then, final point, keep it to yourself. That's verse 22. Do you see it there? 
Okay, so let's just walk through this. We, we have thought things through. We have come to conclusions, personal conclusions on secondary issues. It bends our life in a certain direction. That's verse 14. Paul says, I've thought this through on the secondary issue of food. I, I'm okay with what I'm doing. Some may differ, but that's okay. However, however, verse 15, if my brother or sister in Christ is distressed because of my liberties about what I eat, Okay, the Greek word translated distress means if I'm causing them emotional pain and emotional distress, this is something equal to the pain in childbirth, the Greek word there is. If my brother, whom Christ died for, is in distress over these things, then I'll tell them, tough luck, grow up, I'm free. Is that what it says? No, look at verse 15. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. But why? Well, that's a secondary issue. It's just our voice as opposed to the voice of God. In other words, the principle that Paul is saying here is that the fundamental reason why we have been given Christian liberty is to serve one another in love. That's why I wrote, read verses 1 through 5 following in chapter 15. We've been given those privileges to serve one another in love, not to indulge in our privileges, which means we must be willing to lose our liberties Because love for others will limit our liberties. Love for others will limit our liberties. It will reshape the fundamental direction of our lives. And that's what Paul is saying. And if you think about it, that's what Jesus Christ did. 1 Corinthians 8, 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Although he was rich, he became poor. So that you and I, through his poverty, might become rich. You see? Well, Jesus, why did you do that? Well, I wanted to serve you in love and take away your sin. So if you like, Christ, Christ died for the vegetable eater. He died for the occasional drinker. Meat might be lawful, but in this situation, it's not helpful. So for love's sake, just stop it. True Christian liberty is not demanding rights. We're going to learn that big time in 1 Corinthians. True Christian liberty is not demanding rights. It's losing your rights for the good of others, just like Jesus. Jesus emptied himself, even though he was king of all kings. Jesus became a servant of death to win us back. So we ask ourselves this morning, how Christian do you really want to be? (laughs) How big is your loyalty to Christ? What are we clinging to that causes others despair? Okay, that would be perfect. I'd be like, great, Paul. End it right there, please. But he doesn't. Look at verse 16. It just seems to come out of nowhere. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. I mean, if if I was writing this, I'd be like, can I please skip that one? Because it might confuse everybody. Because what does all that mean in light of what we just said in verse 15? Well, if you look at the remaining verses... If we are not to allow what we consider good to be spoken of of evil, then what are we going to do when we get together? Well, that's why verse 22 is so crucial. It means we must keep it to ourselves. This is beautiful. Keep your secondary issues, your disputable matters, your personal... Keep it to yourself. Keep it a secret. No flaunting your liberties. No parading them in order that, that no one will be opposing them. Look at verse 22. So whatever you believe about these things... Keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. So what Paul is saying is Christian people, keep it to yourself and be willing to lose your liberties for the sake of others. 
and Christian writers. Think about what you're writing for God's people and think about the words of Jesus who said in John's gospel, he, he who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for themselves, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him, he is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. You see that? So secondary issues may win you some privileges personally. However, publicly, we very well could be confusing and offending precious lives of people who Jesus Christ died for. So that means pastors don't pastor and don't preach sermons and don't lead churches with secondary issues. Keep it to yourself and keep it out of the church as best you can. Now, I want you to think with me. What changed the world in the first century? The message of the cross or techniques for family, finance, life, marriage, and bedroom. You're sensible people. Think it out. I learned this week that, that the, data, the, the statistics people tell us that half the people in the world that are, or excuse me, half the people that have ever been alive in the world are alive right now. And then they tell us more than half of them don't know Jesus Christ. You tell me what I should be saying. And so we close with this. This is the way Christians ought to live their lives and how leaders ought to lead Christ's church, endeavoring to keep the essentials before us and the secondary issues behind us. And whatever we've abandoned on earth for the sake of our brother or our sister, the concessions that we made for the good of others when we reach heaven, we're going to discover pretty quickly that it's, well, it's been well worth it. Just ask Jesus. And so we'll close with this. Let's just say someone says, I don't like this at all. I am free to live as I choose. I am free to say what I choose. I am free to speak my mind. And you know what? Sometimes God speaks through me, and, and that's just tough for everybody else. Okay, so if you're going to say that, if someone says this, and this is what I would say to you, I want you to consider the words of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. John's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 49 and 50. You ready? For I did not speak on my own accord. But the Father who sent me, the voice from heaven, commanded me what to say and how to say it by tone and by, and by talk. My Father told me what to say. And I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. See, the voice from heaven, the voice outside of our culture. And that's what Paul's saying through this whole chapter. By way of principle, Paul is saying this. All I have is Christ. My only hope is Christ. My only judge is Christ. My only king is Christ. And that's why I only preach Christ. And that's why my only boast, the only thing I'm going to put forward, as difficult as that might be for my ego, the only thing that I'm going to put forward is Christ. Is Christ. And that'll do. That'll do. Get it right. Accept everyone. Stop it now. No judging, no living aimlessly. Keep it to yourself. Secondary, disputable matters, keep it to ourselves. Thank you for your attention. Let's, let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you for just the wisdom of your truth. And we pray that those things that were helpful and useful would stay with us. Those things that might have been confusing or alarming, uh, we would either think through them or just put them away. And so, Jesus, we thank you that you took all your sinlessness for our transgressions, that you gave us your purity for our uncleanness, that you gave us your truth for our deceit, 
You gave us your meekness for our pride. You gave us your perfection for our backsliding. You gave us your love for our anger, your fullness for our emptiness, your faithfulness for our treachery. And that on the cross, we see the full punishment of sin. And we see our glorious Savior. And we see the message. The one message that we can proclaim in any place, anywhere, anytime. And never um, wonder if we said or believed the right thing. So, Father, please help us to get these things right as we live this life in a fallen body on a fallen planet that will soon come to an end. And may now the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and the love of God be ours now forever and ever. Amen.